So if we look back, um, I wanted to try and give a very, very brief synopsis um, of the book of Matthew that we have gone through for three years now. Um, you know, as you get further and further along into a subject or a topic and uh, get get too far removed from its origins, then a lot of times you kind of get lost in the mist as you uh, travel further and further through it. So I wanted us to look at highlights today really briefly um, to close it out and remind us. My hope is that at some point in time I might be able to compile this into something that I can uh, then give out to people so that um, it, it would be easier to bring this to mind. But um, but right now, if we start, I think there's a verse out of Hebrews chapter 11 um, that kind of, I don't know, sums up, describes in my mind um, everything that we've talked about with Matthew as far as just the the complete inadequacy of trying to um, go through the book of Matthew, go through any one of the books of the gospel, sum up everything that Jesus did, you know, and wrap a nice ribbon around it. Um, Paul, in, in writing to the Hebrew brethren in verse 32 of chapter 11, you know, he's gone through chapter 11 and he's made this, this talk about all the great men of Israel who came before and all that they had done. And at the end, in verse 32, he says, And what shall I say more? Uh, for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and then of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also and Samuel and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fires, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant and fight, turned the flight or turn to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves and in the earth. And these all having obtained a good report through faith received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us that they without us should not be made perfect. Now, the reason that I use that section of scripture is because number one, it points to this consistency of faith even through all of these Difficult times, but also all these amazing triumphs. But it also testifies to the necessity of us. God never intended for us not to exist. And by us, I mean the saints that came out of um, the church and Jesus and the future church and the future called people versus um, Israel and the Jews. And so he says there in that closing section that God had provided some better thing for us, Jesus, the gospel, the church, that they without us should not be made perfect. That is that they were not standalone completed in and of themselves. They were all precursors to us. And we look at their lives and what they went through, never having obtained the promises that ultimately we have obtained. 
So with that in mind, we look back at the book of Matthew and we see Matthew from chapter 3 all the way to chapter 28. We get to see how all of this is forming into this new thing that we're calling the church. And that's really what I wanted to make sure from our synopsis, what our main point was. As that this, the gospel, Matthew All of this that we read, all of this that we studied through, everything we've gone through over the last three years has hopefully been pointing us to the purpose and the mission of the church, of what what we're here for. You know, we talked last week when we read the Great Commission, you know, that this is this is what we're here for. This is what we're commanded to do, that Christ has all authority. He received all authority over heaven and earth. At his resurrection, that he was the triumphal, victorious Savior, and that because of that, God said, God the Father said, that he would put all authority on Jesus until all of his enemies be made his footstool. So we have the authority in Jesus Christ, and Jesus then commands us. He gives marching orders, gives a mission statement to his church, and he says, Go forth and make disciples in all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and teaching them to keep and observe and learn and do all the things that I have commanded you. Well, that's pretty much summing up everything that the church is responsible for. You know, we kind of, again, we made a point to mention this last week, and I reiterated that you notice that there was nothing else in that. Number one, there's nobody else in that picture. Jesus is the entire authority. There's no one else listed in that. There's no denomination. There's no nation. There's no anybody. It's just Jesus. There's no really, really good preacher who we like. And no, it's Jesus. Jesus is the sole authority. He's been that for 2,000 years and will continue to be that. As far as who has authority over what the church is supposed to be doing. It's all Jesus. There's nobody else. There's nobody else that has authority to say, yeah, that's great, but I think it would be better if we did this. If the church took this direction, if we decided that maybe this was more important than anything, well, that's that's not up to you. Good job on thinking. You know, you get an A for thinking outside of the box, but here's the reality. Jesus set the mission for the church 2,000 years ago, and it hasn't changed. It's been the same mission. The same great commission that he put in place 2,000 years ago is still and should be still the sole guiding principle for how the church operates. What its purpose is. What your purpose is individually. And the fact that he clarified exactly what we're supposed to be teaching. Said, well, what are we supposed to be making disciples of and who and when and where and all these things. He did a very good job of just making it very succinct. You're going to make disciples everywhere of everyone. There's no exclusions. And what are you going to make them disciples in? We're not making them disciples in Americanism. We're not making them disciples in Republican or Democratism. In fact, I can make up that ism. We're not even making disciples of primitive Baptistism. That's not our goal. That's not in here. In fact, that name didn't even come into existence until the 1800s. So that's 1800 years later. No Baptist, Methodist, Wesleyan, none of that. 
That's not who we're making disciples of. We're making disciples of Jesus Christ, which is very easy for us because that means we only got one source to go to. I'm not going to go back to 200 years of traditionalism or I'm not going to go back to 300 years of denominationalism. I'm going to go back to the word of God of the things of Jesus Christ who told me explicitly what I should be teaching. Say, well, what is it? What should we be teaching? What should we be making disciples in? Exactly what he said, the teachings and the commandments of Jesus Christ, which means we're going and making disciples of men and women, disciples who are being taught and shown the things of Jesus Christ, of anger and love, of husbands and wives, of forgiveness and repentance. And I mean, all those things that we went through for so many years, this, this is what he's telling us we're to continue and it's not just teaching it. It's not just saying it. It's not, you know, posting it on Facebook or Instagram, filling it up with Bible verses. It's living it. We talked about how, you know, you make disciples of people by how you act, not necessarily by what your Twitter account shows. It's really funny. You can find a lot of duplicity in social media. I don't know if you've noticed that yet. It's really funny how like one day somebody will post this Bible verse about loving all these people. The next day they'll post, you know, news sources talking about killing all these people. I mean, that's a little duplicitous. Or somebody's Instagram account will be all filled with Bible verses. Somebody's Facebook account will be all filled with other things that are anti-Bible verses. I mean, that's just, there is duplicity in what we put out there. In fact, all of social media has a little little hint most of the time of fakeness. It's not who you really are. It's not really the meal you eat every night. You know, you may snap the one of that really good meal from Chez Fon Fon or something like that. You don't snap like the chicken nuggets you were eating out of the bag the night before. Okay. There's a little bit of fakeness putting this image out there that you are just, you know, that perfect put together, well done, hair's just right, face looks good kind of thing. You don't show any of the other bad pictures. Nobody posts bad pictures on Instagram and that stuff if you haven't ever noticed. It's always the good stuff. So it's not by what we put out there. It's not by what we say. It's what we do. It's our actions. That's how we make disciples. Make disciples at work by your actions. If you're relying on your Facebook account to be your gospel message and you're not living it at work, then... We're, we're failing in that. We mentioned last week about the come and see mentality. You know, for a while there, that, that was something that we, we had such a, I don't know, a push for. It was like, well, you know, we're either unexplainable or whatever it may be. We've just, we, we defaulted to this. Well, you just need to come and see. We took that verse of scripture where you had someone who was making a statement about no good thing can come from Nazareth. And one of the apostles was like, well, you just need to come and see and see Jesus and see if you still believe that. And so we took this mentality of a come and see mentality, <laughs> meaning for whatever reason, I'm not able to convince you outside of bringing you into this building with these people and get my preacher to get it across to you is how that ultimately boils down to. The come and see mindset is that somehow I am not embodying this or I am not living this out or I'm not explaining it well enough. And what I need to do is I need to let you come and see my pastor or somebody who can get this across a little bit better. And what I didn't fully explain last week, but I wanted us to really 
remember this week is that we, we need to drift away from a come and see mentality that it's not my responsibility, number one, that it's not my ability, number two, and that number three, there's something just a little bit too weird about it that we got to bring you in and let you see it. And rather embrace what Jesus would have us do in the Great Commission, which is what I'm going to call a show and tell mentality. So instead of looking at someone and saying, oh, well, you know, well, what do you, why do you go to church? Oh, just come and see. Well, why do you say, well, I'll just come and see. Instead of getting into that mindset, it should already be evident for us and for everyone around us. It should be a show and tell mentality. People are seeing you show the things and the teachings of Jesus Christ in your life, and then you're telling them about it. That's what we got to from 1 Peter, that we're all a royal priesthood. We have all been called to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, to preach the gospel in our lives, to show forth the marvelous works that he's done in our lives. We've all been called to show and tell the marvelous things Jesus Christ has done for us in our daily lives. It's not come and see. It's not, if I have to tell you, come and see, then you're obviously not seeing it in me. And that's a problem. I'm already discipling you. I'm discipling you that somehow how I'm living and acting out there in my workplace is not sufficiently calling you to the gospel. So it's important for us to adopt the mindset, the missional mindset that Jesus gave his church. He said, all of y'all are called to go out. To preach the gospel, to teach and disciple people in the teachings of Jesus Christ. And I say that because this is where we get in this problem of kind of comfort and kind of status quo, especially in our nation. We look around and anytime you get into any kind of election cycle, there's all these like hobby horse things that people want to get riled up about and get things going about. One of them's like prayer in school and one of them, you know, there's all these little hobby horse things that come up and people want to rally around it and jump into it. And they think, man, if we just vote the right person in there, all these things are going to change. And I'm just going to have to break the bubble for you that it's been like 50 or 60 years of elections and has any of this stuff changed? There's a reason why it doesn't change, okay? There's a reason why those things continue to be the hobby horses because if you actually fix them, then how are you going to get people to vote for you next time? That's number one. Number two, it's just because this is the nation that we live in and this is the depravity of man and how we are. But I think more importantly, it's a failure of us as Christians. We have done what we swear we would never do, which is make an idol out of the political party that we're voting for and say they're the ones that are going to fix it when we're the ones that have been called to fix it. Not by voting. The Roman government before, you know, 300 was crucifying and beheading Christians, yet we were like impacting Rome more than we ever, ever could have. It wasn't when we got the right man in office that the church took off. It was taking off way before that. In fact, it was taking off when we were actually being crucified for our beliefs. So it's not a matter of, well, if we just get the right people in there, if we just vote the right people, that changes. No, the problem is, is that we have retreated back away from our responsibility. We've been called to do this. I always kind of go back to it again. It's I, I do not push on any schooling tradition or thought but i do kind of have a have this kind of thing you know we a lot of people who want to harp about the public school situation 
pulled their kids out of public school. Like, well, if you are a Christian representation and you just pulled yourself out, how do you expect it to change? How do you expect that to have an influence? Same thing with your work. You talk about, oh, my work is just this godless place. Well, are you contributing to that or are you contributing to a change in it? Well, my nation is this, this. It's, well, are you contributing to it or are we cloistering away ourselves and hiding out and going, oh, well, I'm going to vote for these people. And that's the sum total of my Christian duty. We are the only ones in this world who can be salt and light. And if we're hiding in our houses, then guess what? We're, we're not doing that. So instead, Jesus didn't say hide in your houses and protect the doctrine. He said, go forth and teach the nations, which means we actually have to go forth. We actually have to kind of get out. We actually have to kind of get into all of these corners of the world where darkness is. And that's where Christ said, when you're shining a light in darkness, guess what? It flees from the light. Well, the light actually has to go out to do that. That's why he talked about the whole hide it under a bushel. It wasn't just a kid's song. He was saying, no, I've called you actually to light up some places. I've called you to go in areas where places are not lit by the gospel and light it up. I've called you to do this in your homes, in your families, in your, in your workplaces, in your schools, in your neighborhoods. This is what I've called you to. Go forth and teach all nations, all places. Go everywhere and preach and proclaim the gospel. That's what I've called you to do. So that's our mission statement. So we don't get an easy out on this. We don't get to go, well, that's all so terrible out there. But man, I'm glad it's good in here. and We'll all hang out in here until it all comes to an end. And Jesus sets everything right. No, Jesus said, I told you to go out into that. And yeah, it's going to be hard. And yes, you're going to suffer. And guess what? I suffered. And we're all going to suffer and be happy when you suffer. Because I, su- I mean, all this that he lays out there does not give us the picture of lock the doors and hang out till the world ends. It's a mission. It's a hard mission, but it is a mission. So that's part of our responsibility. But as we go through this, you see that in each one of these chapters, in each one of these areas, that is reiterated. Chapter 3, we have John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus. That's the beginning place. Jesus said, go forth and preach. And what we were supposed to preach was repent and be baptized for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's step number one. Jesus did it, and Jesus even said that it was required to fulfill all righteousness. So why we think we could get away without doing it, I don't know. But that's one of the number one steps. It's one of the one, number one things that should be preached. When you're talking to people or trying to show them and disciple them in that, it's like, hey man, there's repentance and baptism is number one. You don't get to just ride on the gravy train without submitting to Christ. That's part of it. It's not optional. It's never given as an option. It's never given as something to do for the fun of it. It's always given as something to do with obedience to the Lord who died for you. It's not optional. Chapter 4, we have the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And then we have the calling of the disciples. This gives us, again, another picture of Jesus in his humanity as he's being tempted in the wilderness. But also giving us that wonderful kind of how we live. We don't live by our own self-sufficiency. We live off the bread of life, the word of God, central in our lives. And then he called his disciples, which were not the greatest people in the world. And we've got like tax collectors skimming off the top. We've got, you know, dirty fishermen. I mean, we didn't we didn't pick the elites. We picked the 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 average person 
okay? And some people who were average in a bad way. Jesus was showing, look, I'm the one that makes the choice, thankfully, or else none of y'all would qualify. Matthew 5 through 7 goes through the different conditions that Jesus lays out, the different uh, kind of prescriptions of this is how you're supposed to live. I know you've heard people say over and over again that it's only a problem if you actually commit the action. But what I'm telling you is if it's starting in your heart, it's already a problem. It's not just I committed adultery. It's, it's I've been lusting and that's just as bad. It's not I'm, I'm, I haven't killed someone yet, but I hate everybody. Well, that's just as bad. So he gets back to the heart of the issue to make sure we're understanding that that is where the source of everything comes from. And he later tells the Pharisees, it's not what goes out from a man that defiles him. It's from what is inside or reverse that. It's not what goes inside a man that defiles him. It's what comes out, what's in his heart. You can wash everything, wash your hands. That's not what defiles you. What defiles you is what's already in your heart and then comes out. And then he gives a lot of, a lot of kind of judgments about how we are to act and do. What he's pushing us away from is religious hypocrisy. Don't just pray so you can say you're a prayer warrior. Don't just fast because you can say you're a super Christian. You're doing these things for the purpose of glorifying the Father. That's why. They're necessary. They're good. They're right actions to take. In that, he even gives us the Lord's Prayer, which I call the Lord's Prayer because the Lord said it. And that's why I call it that. Um, but that's, that's part of it. He says, this is, a, this is a prayer. You need to be praying and considering these different aspects of your prayer. And that your prayer is not some vain, repetitious thing that you just think if you say it over and over again, or if you say the same old root prayer over and over again, that somehow that makes you more accessible to the Father. The Father would rather have one conscious, conciliatory prayer than he would some kind of vain thing you're just throwing up there. I don't care who you are. So then he gets into chapter 8 and we start seeing healings and where Jesus has healed people that again, would not have been classified as people who would deserve to be healed according to the Jewish tradition. Again, you have a, a dichotomy there of where Jesus is showing pure, true graciousness compared to legalism that's always going to restrict the who's and the when's of who is deserving of God's grace. It's really a bad thing to get into. If you start going down a track where you can start prescribing God's grace to certain people and keeping it from others, I don't think any of us would say that's a very good situation to be in. You know, that's something that probably if I'm following what I hope to follow after this is hopefully I'm going to be able to get into a series that I'm going to call Radical Grace. But it really, it, it, it hits me all too often that just as the Pharisees would preach and preach and preach about all the things that God required in, their, in his law, what you found Jesus over and over and condemning them on was they're not actually keeping the law that they preach so well. So they would preach about tithing and they would tithe all these things that, oh, the average person doesn't tithe mint and cumin like I'm tithing it. And Jesus is like, yeah, but you ignored bigger things like mercy and justice. And what he tells them is he said, you actually should have done that and still not ignored this. 
You'd have been keeping the law perfectly then, but you ignored the bigger things. You ignored what God tells you that I would not desire sacrifice. I desire mercy. So what I find too is that we have a bad habit sometimes of getting very good about preaching about grace. But then there's just these situations that come up that end up not being applied in a gracious way. It's a dangerous thing to say you've got the corner market on God's teaching of grace, but you are no more gracious in your life. That means that either the doctrines of the teachings of Jesus Christ on grace, God's grace is really not that gracious, or it really doesn't have that much of an effect in your life. Say, oh, I believe it's all by grace, salvation by grace. I love Romans 8, and I love Ephesians 2, and I love all these things that talk about grace, 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 but you are vindictive, judgmental, and legalistic in your life? I don't know. I don't really know if you know grace. I don't even know if you really understand what God was saying there. I think you might have a very good theology built here, but I'm not really sure it's having a whole lot of effect on your life. So Jesus here heals people like the Roman centurion servant. And he actually looked at the Roman centurion and goes, Guys, I'm just, all you Israelites, I'm just going to tell you, there's nobody else in Israel that's got this kind of faith. This is a huge slap in the face to a whole nation that claimed its whole existence is about faithful service to the one true and living God. And Jesus is going, none of y'all have faith like this guy. This Gentile Roman occupying heathen has more faith in what I can do than y'all do. Again, that's a bad situation to be in. Because, see, those people would have claimed that they had it all. They've got everything right. They've got the right doctrine, the right theology, the right practice. They've got it all. And Jesus is going, yeah, and I'm telling you, this heathen man that has no connection with you whatsoever is nailing it where you are failing so miserably. So he continues to heal people through chapters 9 going into chapters 10. Chapter 11, we have where John the Baptist is doubting and Jesus rebukes his doubts and saying, you know, you should go tell John again the things that are being done. And he references right back to the Old Testament prophecies about what Jesus would do. The lame are healed, the blind receive their sight, the deaf can hear, and most importantly, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Don't miss that point. Don't miss that that was a prophetic identity marker for Jesus Christ that he then passes on to his church when he commands them, go forth and preach the gospel in all nations. You're going to continue to fulfill that prophetic word that was given back in the Old Testament of the gospel being preached to the poor. That those who are needy, destitute, broken, sad, lost, depraved, whatever it is that they are hearing what the word of God would call them to. That's an essential point, an essential part of our existence. That's what we're here for. And Jesus even goes into that same chapter 11 and 12, and he actually kind of goes into the fact that, hey, this nation that I'm preaching to, this generation of people are completely unresponsive. I have preached to them things that, as he said, if this had been in Sodom and Gomorrah's day, they would have repented. David says, woe to you, Bethsaida, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, all these places. And he said, if I had been here preaching these things in Sodom and Gomorrah, 
they would have repented. Now, you really do need to let that sink in. You really do need to kind of grasp what Jesus was saying there about the hopelessness of this generation he is preaching to. Saying that basically Sodom and Gomorrah, which is always held up as like this bastion of ungodliness that was burnt down because of it. Christ is saying if they had only had this word, things would have gone a lot differently. Saying that the generation that he's preaching to at this point is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. You say, oh, well, well, they weren't doing the things that Sodom and Gomorrah. Everybody likes to focus on Sodom and Gomorrah about homosexuality and what they were doing there and go, oh, man, these places were just awful. Look at what they were doing. It was such an immoral place. And what Jesus is saying is your denial of the gospel and your lack of belief in Jesus Christ and God at this moment is infinitely worse than everything they were doing in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's pretty harsh. And that should kind of frame for us what should be the most important things in our lives. And number two, to recognize that, again, talking about radical grace, there are, there are all sins encapsulated in what was paid for on the cross. There's not someone doing something right now that we look at and go, oh, well, but there's no grace for that. That's such a wicked and awful thing that... There's no way they could ever be allowed to repent. There's no ever there could be a way to, for them to enter into the church. I mean, and if they do, then we need to be really watchful of them because, I mean, just look how bad they were. Jesus is going, we could have had a whole city in Sodom and Gomorrah repent. What's more concerning to Jesus in this moment and which he condemns them for is their lack of belief in him and what he can do. There's nobody sitting in this bench in this room. There's nobody in this world today that if Jesus has died for their sins is unforgivable or has some kind of restriction on them as far as what they can do or how they can join the church and be a part of us or how they should be treated in the future. All we have as an example is Jesus Christ dying on the cross and saying, forgive, repent and be baptized. And there's no, there's no connection on any of that. There's no, there's no restrictions on any of that. Matthew 13, we have all the parables that we have talked about before, giving us a picture of the kingdom and what it looks like. It's a big, big, big kingdom. It is full of a lot of people that they, nobody would even think would be able to join in. And it's a, it's a net dragging in a lot of people indiscriminately in most cases. In fact, in the parable of the net, he says the, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that's thrown out there. It gathers in all these fish and then God ultimately sorts it out, the good between the bad. He says it's just like with the field where you're going to be growing up together with wheat on one side, which represents the children of God, and tares on the other side, which represent the children of the devil. And he said, and both of those are going to continue to grow up in the kingdom until the last days when it's all sorted out. So he says that's it. This is it's a big net. He says there's not even a there's not even a commandment for us that somehow we have the authority to weed it out. If the angels didn't have the authority to weed it out, we certainly don't. All Jesus commands is go cast the net. Go preach in every nation. Go throw the net out there and gather as I have called you to do. 
and 15 and 16 and 17, he starts leading up to the transfiguration and he starts showing the change in tone, calling out the Pharisees, condemning traditionalism, condemning the status quo that was there and trying to draw people towards the true following of Jesus Christ and what his kingdom was going to look like. The transfiguration was kind of that moment that, that shifted things. It showed a change in the pattern, a sh- revealing Jesus Christ for who he was and his authority. You then go into 18 where you have the question of who is the greatest. And Jesus gives a great chapter filled with the greatest person is the servant. The greatest person is the repentant person. The greatest person is the forgiving person. And we talked about with that chapter about how the forgiveness model is not three strikes and you're out. There's no time frame on the forgiveness model. There is no, okay, well, I went to them and they did rejected me. So then I went and grabbed some buddies from church and then they rejected us. And then I brought it up before the church and look at that. Wham, bam. Thank you, ma'am. It's all done. And now you get kicked out because you, you struck out. That's three strikes. Instead, what we tried to highlight in that chapter was that it wasn't about, did you satisfy the law in going with three different occasions, but rather, did you try again? Did you try again? Did you try again? Did you try again? You know, in our lifetime, that's in, and within that same chapter is the parable of the lost sheep where Jesus goes, hey, guess what, guys? Y'all are a bunch of dumb sheep. You're going to go astray a lot. There's going to be plenty of times that you're going to wander away and get stuck. And guess what? I'm going to have to come and get you. And there's two promises in that. Number one is that Jesus is saying, I'm going to come get you. I don't ever leave you out there. I paid for you. You're mine. I want you. I'm not going to let you go out there and get stuck and just be like, you know what? Third time's the charm. I'm done with you. The comfort that we have is Jesus saying, hey, guys, I'm always going to come get you. But the second part of that is that he's teaching us as well. There's no cutoff for us. We don't just satisfy the law and feel better about ourselves that we did things in the right way. Rather, Jesus said, hey, I go after you. You go after them. Continue to try and bring them back to restore them to the good nature of Jesus Christ. Come and restore them to fellowship. Restore them to fellowship with their Savior. I could care less about church roles and, and names on a list. Because again, when I go back here, I don't find it in the Bible. Okay? I don't find Corinth going, well, we went down the church list and these are the people who are... I don't see that. Okay? We're not a club. We don't have a membership list in that sense. What we do have is brothers and sisters who are either in fellowship with Christ or not who are living in a manner that they're in close communion with Christ or not. And what we desire is for everyone to be included in fellowship with Christ. And so if you're not, we want to try to get you back in. And so he gives us the model of just go after him again. Do it one more time. What's it going to hurt? Keep going. Take a few buddies. Let them try. Keep trying to show them that the path they're on leads to destruction and bring them back to the path of life. 19, we have the rich young ruler and the dichotomy of stuff and Jesus that we are never going to be able to serve both. It's going to come down to a moment where it's one or the other. We have to make a stand at some point. We cannot say, I'm going to continue to live my life the way I want to live it, but I'm going to say that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ because you're not going to be able to make those two mesh. You're either going to serve one or forsake the other. 
Chapter 20, he gives us the the uh, identity of service and dedication. He shows us about the parable of the vineyard, vineyard workers. He predicts his death for the third time to show them what was going to happen. And then he talks about all the suffering and the service. The difference between wanting status and giving up your life. And then in 21, we have the triumphal entry where Jesus makes his first and last appearance in Jerusalem. He enters it, cleans house, makes the statements about how he's going to get praised, whether it's by rocks or by the children in the temple. You can be as hard-hearted as you want to, but God is going to get his praise. Then he gives us the parable of the fig tree that he curses. And we use that as the image of the cursed, barren Jerusalem, the religious establishment that was there, the Judaism that was occupying that area that was devoid of faithfulness to Jehovah, but was continuing the routine to try to look like a good bunch of holy folks that Jesus was saying, you're nothing but a barren fig tree and you're cursed. And he predicts the destruction. 22, he continues with his rebuke and talks about the parable of the wedding banquet. He also throws in the God and Caesar thing. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. He also in that gives the greatest commandment. These are the most important things of the sum total of the Bible that you are to love God with everything and love your neighbor with everything. It's not optional. 23, he condemns the religious hypocrites in the Pharisees and the Sadducees and then laments over Jerusalem and its future destruction. 24, he continues to describe the destruction and the end of time and of everything that carries over into chapter 25 and giving us the picture of readiness, expectation, and action with the parable of the ten virgins, with the parable of the talents, with the sheep and the goats being separated on the judgment day. He's given us that picture of you are expecting, you are waiting, you are working, you are doing because you believe that Jesus Christ is going to come again. And then our works are judged and there's ultimately going to be a separation one day. 26, we have the plots and the plans to kill Jesus, as well as the Passover that is instituted. With, I mean, the first sup, Lord's Supper, the communion that is instituted at Passover, the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, and ultimately Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin. This is the moment where we see Jesus' humanity on greatest display. He is weeping and crying in the garden, showing all of us he was human. He was seeking help from his Father in heaven. He was pouring out his heart in prayers. And as we learn from Psalm 22, that more than likely those prayers were not heard like he's heard them before. Were not responded to like he had heard before. He didn't have this audible voice from heaven come down and say, Lord or Jesus, you are my beloved son. I've got things under control. Instead, in Psalms 22, it would talk about how he poured out his heart day and night, but heard nothing in return. So any of us who have ever had those moments where we feel like we're praying but not getting heard, we understand we're getting heard, but we may not be getting the answer that we want at that moment. If Jesus can go through it, we obviously will as well. But ultimately, in those moments, we come back to the same statement that Jesus made. Not my will, but your will be done. It's hard. It's difficult. We can't figure it out. We like to have things fixed and in a box. And Jesus, I'm sure, being the Lord and creator of all the universe, really liked having things ordered. And the fact that it wasn't in this moment was probably bothersome. I want this removed. 
But ultimately, it's not about what I want. It's about what you want, Father. Chapter 27, we have what we called the end, which was Jesus going to Pilate, Jesus going to the cross, Jesus dying and being buried. Looked like the end, looked like defeat, looked like failure. We talked about the moments of everywhere everyone was at, the faithfulness of the women who were there at the cross and who served him faithfully and had never left his side compared to these awesome disciples who all ran and fleed and cowered and hid and locked themselves in a room. And then in chapter 28, in the closing of it, or the beginning actually, we have these women returning to the grave, finding it empty, being the first preachers of the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mary Magdalene and Mary the other Mary being the first preachers of the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Man, woman, child, adult, all have been called to preach the gospel. We talked about how 1 Peter in chapter 2 says that we are all a royal priesthood. We are all called as a special, peculiar people to go forth and show forth or proclaim or preach the marvelous things that God has done in our lives. Everyone. So you've ever said, well, am I supposed to preach? Yeah, you're supposed to preach. We're all supposed to preach. Every day we're supposed to preach. We're supposed to preach and proclaim the marvelous things that God has done for us. We're supposed to preach and proclaim the gospel. We talked about how that doesn't mean that everybody's called to be a pastor, teacher, bishop, which there is specific criteria for. But everybody's supposed to be preaching the gospel every single day of their lives. If you're waiting to say, come and see it at the church, you're missing out on what you have been called and gifted to do. Every individual believer has been called and gifted by God to be ambassadors, to be ministers of reconciliation, and to preach and proclaim the gospel, the good news of the things that Jesus has done for them. That's just baseline. So here you have the closing or the beginning where Jesus is resurrected. He visits Mary and Mary. He visits the apostles. He visits with the entire disciple group, which equaled up to about 500 on a mountain in Galilee. And he gives the church that was gathered there, their new marching orders, which are, you are to go forth to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the father, the son, and the Holy ghost and teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you to do to make disciples in all nations, teaching them to observe the things that I have commanded you to do. And I will be with you always. So if you wanted the sum total of the entire gospel message, then you can break it down in this way between salvation and deliverance, which Jesus was setting people free way before he died on the cross. He was setting people free through healings, released from slavery, released from sins, released from disobedience. Repentance and baptism, or you could look at it as obedience and salvation as the paths to deliverance. That those two, again, we talked about how you can know about something all day, but if you're not 
if you're not committed to it, then you're really not any different. Okay. I can have a million dollars in my bank account. Number one, if I don't know about it, then I don't really know that I'm a millionaire. Number two, especially if I don't go make a withdrawal from it, especially not really doing a whole lot with my millions of dollars. So it can be there. I can technically possess it, but if I don't know about it and if I'm not using it, then I'm just as poor as I ever was. The message that we get from the gospel is this repent and be baptized. Yes, Jesus accomplished your salvation on the cross. Yes, he chose you before the foundation of the world. If you don't know about it, you're not really experiencing anything different in your life. And if you are not obedient to it, then you really aren't experiencing anything different in your life. So when we use words like that about repentance and baptism and obedience and salvation, we are talking about if you're still, I don't, if Jesus died for you on the cross and chose you before the world began, but you're still living in the slavery that you've been in, whatever that may be in your entire life, then guess what? You're still enslaved. You're not saved from it. You haven't been delivered. You're still in bondage. How do we get out of that bondage? Well, number one, we know about it. We know the gospel. We believe it and we obey it. That's how we're delivered. That's how we get out of it. That's how by the power of what Christ has told us of obedience, we're now exiting from the slavery we were in. We're no longer following after those things. We're living in a free life in obedience to Jesus Christ. It gives us purpose to take up your cross, share the good news, command obedience, help the needy, give to the poor, pray for your enemies, and help them when they are in need. It's a new purpose in life. It teaches us to love, love, love. Love God and everyone else and be marked by your love so that when everyone sees it, they recognize it. And lastly, it gives us hope that as Jesus died and was raised you will be raised as well. So take the hope and use it for the purpose that we find in the gospel. So again, I hope this has all been a good recap. I know it's a little fragmented and all over the place, um, but maybe it'll be a little concise enough to close things out so that we'll be able to maybe move forward after this. And I hope that um, that this has been beneficial over the last three years. And I hope that uh, it will continue to be beneficial as we look back at it. So may God bless us to work on it.